Hi. Right, welcome to CPO's first seminar in our new online seminar series. Uh, briefly, for those of you who don't know us, um, we're a new research centre based at UCL, working to inform and design evidence-led education policy and wider practice that equalises opportunities throughout life. Um, my name is Lindsay McMillan, I'm the director of CPO, um, and we're really glad to see so many people joining us today from a wide variety of different organisations, including academics, policymakers, uh, people working in think tanks and third sector stakeholders as well. Um, we've got a great way to kick off our seminar series. We're very lucky today to be joined by Clementine Van Effenter from the University of Toronto. Clementine is an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto and her work investigates how organizations, institutions and social norms can affect gender differences in human capital investment decisions. Uh, before joining the University of Toronto, she was a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and received her PhD in economics from the Paris School of Economics. She's also the host of Inequality Talks, an economic podcast about inequality. Today, she's going to be talking to us about uh, her work on school schedule and the gender pay gap, which is joint work with Emma Ducchini. Um, this is particularly relevant, obviously, to us at a time of severely disrupted school sch uh, schedules and the kind of accompanying gender inequalities uh, that we're seeing for parents. Um, just a few timekeeping um, notes, a few kind of house rules. If there are any clarification questions during the talk, Clementine is more than happy for you to put those in the Q&A and she will try and clarify for you as she goes. Otherwise, if we've got any substantive questions, if we can just hold them for the end, there will be a Q&A session. Um, again, if we can put them in the Q&A um, section of the webinar, which you should see along the bottom, or if you can tweet um, hashtag AskCPO, or you can also email cpo at ucl.ac.uk if you don't want to come on screen. So I will hand over now to Clementine, who will share her screen and present her work. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Lindsay, for uh, the action. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really delighted and honored to kick off your uh, research seminar series. Um, so like you said, this is uh, a joint work with Emma Ducchini, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Warwick. And we are going to talk about uh, school schedule and the gender pay gap. Um, so in most advanced economies, there is a continuous debate on the relationship between the parenting work conflict and its impact on gender inequality. And there has been a considerable amount of work documenting uh, the fact that there is a gender pay gap that emerged between parents after the birth of the first child and tends to persist over time. Um, this has been observed in a variety of contexts, but uh, we know actually very little about the factors that can explain the persistence of this gender pay gap as children uh, get older, especially in context of uh, countries with high female labor force participation. Uh, additionally, there is a pretty large literature documenting the impact of childcare expansion on maternal labor supply uh, and the, uh, the effect of childcare availability on maternal employment. Uh, but we, uh, as far as we know, don't have uh, causal evidence of the impact of the school schedule 
on the parental wage gap. Uh, there are some studies that have looked at the impact of school's calendar on women's employment, but no causal evidence on the impact of scheduling constraints on uh, the gender wage gap. So in this paper, we are going to provide causal evidence uh, that the children, children's school schedule can impact the parental gender pay gap. Uh, we are going to talk about a specific setting, uh, which is France, where historically children in primary school have had no classes on Wednesday. We are taking advantage of a 2013 reform that did the two following things. First, it rescheduled uh, some hours of classes to Wednesday morning. And second, it added three hours of extracurricular activities on the other days to compensate for the shortening of each school day. So we're gonna take advantage of this 2013 reform to implement a difference in differences analysis where we are going to compare the labor supply of uh, parents who are treated by the reform. So those who have children uh, going to primary school to the labor supply dynamics of parents who have slightly older children going to middle school. Well, there was already some classes on Wednesday morning. And additionally, we're going to try to quantify the welfare impact of the reform in terms of public finances and argue that this uh, reform that made the school schedule more regular actually had uh, benefits that outweighed its costs. So I think I won't have to uh, persuade you that these uh, findings are pertinently timely in the context of the current COVID-19 pandemic where uh, we think that bringing forward evidence of the impact of scheduling constraints uh, can be important to understand how uh, the curing school closures can impact um, the widening gap uh, between men and women in terms of hours work and subsequently in terms of uh, earnings. So I'm going to give you a quick preview of uh, our results. So first we show that after uh, the, um, that the, the treated mothers, so those whose youngest children, child is going to primary school actually do take advantage of the 2013 reform to adopt a more regular working schedule. We actually document that before the implementation of the reform, over 40% of these mothers were not working on Wednesday. While actually looking at father's labor supply, we found that they were equally likely to work on each day of the week. We document that after the implementation of the reform, there is an increase in the probability of working on Wednesday for treated mothers. To give you a sense of the magnitude of the effect, we find that treated mothers uh, are able to close over 40% of the pre-reform gap with respect to control mothers. Additionally, we find that treated mothers tend to work more after the implementation of the reform. They shift from part-time to full-time contracts and they increase the average hours of work per week. In contrast, we find that treated fathers continue to work full-time as in the pre-reform period and uh, their labor supply is practically unchanged. So these effects together allow us to quantify the impact on the gender pay gap. And we find that the reform of the school schedule allowed treated mothers to close about 6% of their pay gap with fathers because we're able to document an increase in mothers, uh, the log of mother's monthly wage of about 3% compared to control mothers. 
And this increase in big um, mother's earnings has important consequences because we show that the higher income tax revenues uh, accrued from this uh, increase in women's earnings uh, allows us to compute a welfare analysis. And we show that one euro invested in this reform repays at least 3.7 euros. And this um, estimate is likely to be a lower bound because it does not account for potential positive effect of the reform on children, for which as far as we know, there are no reliable estimates. So this is going to be the outline of my talk today. I'm going to give you some element of uh, the institutional context. Uh, I'll talk about the unique data set that we're using to document the daily changes in labor supply and give you some key descriptive statistics. Then I will present uh, our investigation of the impact of the reform, uh, presenting some even study results and the average effects that allows us to quantify uh, uh, the impact of the reform on um, the gender pay gap. I'll talk about some mechanisms that we can rule out to uh, rationalize these uh, effects, and I'll detail our welfare analysis. So first, uh, I wanted to give you some uh, background about uh, the labor supply dynamics of women in France compared to other countries. So if we look at the labor force participation rate, women uh, aged between 25 and 54 in France compared to other countries, we find that actually France in red is in the OECD average, where we have this well-documented uh, upward trend of female labor force participation common to many developed economies, where obviously uh, Sweden is on top of the world, the uh, complete outlier, but France is about comparable to countries like Canada or Germany, for instance. And here at the bottom, you have the well-documented plateau and slight decrease in uh, female labor force participation in the United States. If we look at the prevalence of part-time work, uh, we can see that uh, in France, the share of women in the age range of 25 to 54 working part-time is about 30%, which is uh, slightly less than what you could observe in the UK or in Germany typically. Now, when we talk about a scheduling constraint or an institutional constraint, what are we actually talking about? So uh, for those who don't know this man, uh, this is uh, Jules Ferry, who used to be the uh, Minister of Education uh, during the Third uh, French Republic. Um, and so he basically in this in 1882 laws, Ferry laws uh, implemented or uh, introduced secular compulsory public education in France. So uh, you have to understand that at the time where uh, public compulsory education was introduced, there was actually a pretty um, uh, controversial top, uh, let's say there was a, a pretty heightened uh, climate with uh, uh, the, the church in France. So typically children used to go to religious schools and in order to try to find a compromise with the Catholic church, um, this was symbolized in this article number two, which says that uh, public primary schools will be closed uh, during one day during the week, in addition to Sunday, so that children uh, will be able to attend religious classes outside of the public school if their parents decide to do so. So initially these days off was Thursday and in 1972 it was moved to Wednesday. So 
in the middle of the week has always been maintained over the 20th century and 21st century in France, despite many changes that could have happened on the school calendar of uh, children. So now we want to know uh, to what extent this change in the schools, this constraint in the school schedule can affect the way um, women are allocating their working hours. So here I'm presenting you uh, the number, average number of hours worked per day for women with children younger than 12 across different countries before 2013. And in red, I show uh, for Wednesday and in blue for other working days. So excluding weekend. So what you can already observe is that compared to other uh, uh, OECD countries, you observe that there is a, a significant gap in the number of hours worked per day for uh, women with younger children uh, in Wednesday compared to other working days. And you actually don't observe this gap for uh, other comparable countries. And if I show you the same picture for women without children or for men with children younger than 12, actually this gap disappears. So this is just suggestive evidence that the presence of an institutional constraint such as the absence of school on Wednesday can actually affect uh, the labor supply of uh, mothers of young girl children. And uh, to give you more, um, uh, to give more suggestive evidence of that, we actually looked at the survey of the childcare choices of families before the implementation of the reform. So when we ask families what is their primary childcare choice for Wednesday between 8 a.m. and 7 p.m., the vast majority of parents actually declare that they take care of their child. Uh, you can see that you have some other childcare arrangements, which includes uh, publicly provided childcare and other private options. And this is something that we will talk about more in the welfare analysis. But this is definitely not the majority uh, of, of these uh, uh, childcare options. So this is just suggestive evidence that uh, if you remember the previous picture that I showed you, and majority of cases, this is going to be actually mothers. So uh, now let me uh, introduce the timeline of the reform that I'm going to use to um, present the, uh, the causal estimation of the uh, impact of the uh, school schedule on the maternal labor supply and the gender gap. So before the reform, uh, children in primary school in France used to go uh, to class for 24 hours per week. They had courses for four days a week and no school on Wednesday since 1972, as I mentioned before. After the implementation of the reform, uh, they keep constant the number of hours that they spend in class, but this time the hours are allocated a bit differently with 4.5 days of school per week. And as I mentioned, three hours of optional extracurricular activities on the other days. This reform was implemented gradually with about 20% of municipalities implementing the reform in September 2013 and the remaining 80% in December 2014. Now, I wanted to just mention that uh, we are not using this uh, variation in the timing of implementation of the reform as our main source of identification for at least two reasons. First, because if we were to do that, we would only be able to capture short-term effects. 
And second, because of the parallel trend assumption that did not hold for these two groups of municipalities. Instead, what we're going to use is to basically compare the labor supply of mothers according to the age of their youngest child. So let me just give you uh, an overview of the changes of the primary school schedule before and after the reform. So this is what the, a typical school schedule for a child in primary school looked like before 2013, with three hours of classes in the morning, three hours of classes in the afternoon, uh, the lunch break potentially taken at school, and uh, no classes on Wednesday. After the reform, we basically have a shortening of the afternoon for kids and the introduction of compulsory classes on Wednesday for about 95% of the municipalities that implemented the reform. And you would have typically uh, 45 minutes uh, per day of extracurricular activities allocated on the other days. So there's some variation in the ways these municipalities implemented these uh, extracurricular activities, but for the vast majority of them, they always decided to allocate it over several days. And in terms of the take-up rate for these activities, we have a, an average of, uh, for more than half of the municipalities, the take-up rate was about 85%. Um, so in general, these uh, activities, despite being non-compulsory, um, a lot of children actually attended them. So now um, you might wonder whether a reform of the school schedule um, actually have, uh, have some importance for employers. And I just wanted to show you some uh, suggestive evidence that they knew about the reform. So we looked at the occurrences of the term school schedule in the main, the two main business outlets, Lizico and Challenge, uh, to have a sense of how often it was discussed in the business use in this uh, period of time. But because in itself it doesn't tell you a lot, we can actually try to compare to other important reforms that were discussed at the time. So. Um, we, I mentioned the 75% uh, tax uh, reform that was discussed under Holland administration, and you can see that it does not really compare. Uh, if we look at gay marriage, who was also um, introduced by um, the Holland presidency, um, again, the school schedule actually generated a lot of discussion. And uh, to, to finish, I wanted to uh, remind you that uh, the World Cup is actually happening every four years and that uh, France won in 2018. So now let me talk about uh, the data that we're using and give you some key descriptive statistics. So uh, for our analysis, we're gonna re uh, rely mostly on the French labor force survey with special access to respondents locations. So it's a restricted use um, uh, access to the, the labor force survey where we know the zip code of uh, each um, respondent. And we're going to exclude from our sample all the respondents that are working in schools. So teachers, administrative staff, and so on. The reason why we do that is we don't want to be capturing a mechanical effect of the reform because if kids are showing up to school on Wednesday, then obviously teachers will have to be there. Um, just bear in mind that our results will be robust to the addition of these, uh, of these respondents in, in the sample. So in the French Labour Force survey, not only we have access to the age of children, which is a key variable for our identification, uh, we have a series of outcomes. So labour force participation, uh, part-time work, 
the number of hours worked per week, uh, the number of days worked per week. And uh, luckily, we have benefited from the introduction in 2013 of a new question in the French Labor Force Survey, which actually measures whether each day of the week is actually worked. So which day is worked per week. Additionally, we are using an administrative data set from the Ministry of Education called the Enrisco database, which is going to give us the year of implementation of the reform by municipality and the new class time schedule by school. Finally, we are relying on the estimates of uh, the CNAF IMF survey, which is a survey of extracurricular activities implemented on a subsample of uh, over 5,000 cities. So to give you a, a, a sort of overview of what was the situation before the reform, uh, before the implementation of the reform in 2013, uh, I just wanted to show you some uh, key descriptive stats of the proportion of wor uh, working mothers and fathers by each day of the week and uh, by age of the youngest child. So here you see that in on the x-axis we are uh, showing the age of the youngest child from 0 to 1 to uh, 15 and 18. And in pink you have uh, for mothers and in blue for fathers, sorry for the color code. Um, we are just plotting the proportion of these parents who are working on Wednesday. So what you can see is like the proportion of fathers working on Wednesday is actually remarkably stable across the age of the youngest child. While we can see that um, over 40% of uh, working mothers uh, whose youngest child is 6 and 11, between 6 and 11, do not work on Wednesday. And we can see a substantial gap between uh, women whose youngest child is going to primary school and women whose youngest child is going to middle school. So uh, there is actually suggestive evidence that uh, these uh, age cutoff might affect substantially uh, the, the proportion of mothers working on Wednesday. So now let me move to the uh, impact of the reform. So first I'm going to show you some event study graph where we are trying to uh, model the dy a dynamic specification of the impact of the reform on a series of labor supply measures. So for the outcome, we are going to look at uh, labor force participation, hard time work, hours per week, the number of days work per week, and the decision to work each day of the week as two measures of earnings, so the log of monthly and hourly wage. In our specification, we're going to um, look at parents separately by gender, and uh, we are going to control for municipality fixed effect and uh, wave of interview fixed effect. And uh, we are going to cluster standard errors at the municipality level, but our results are robust to alternative uh, clustering. Finally, in terms of the controls that we add to these um, specification, we are going to control by the standard sociodemographic variables that you can think of, but also by typically the presence of other adult members in the household uh, and the, obviously the level of education. So this is going to be kind of the, uh, the key result of this paper. We're looking at the uh, dynamic effect of the reform for women in red and for men in blue um, on the real monthly wage. 
Um, so what you can see is like we omit the year before the implementation of the reform. And after the gradual implementation of the reform, we see that there is a sharp increase in earnings of mothers of youngest, uh, whose youngest child is going to primary school compared to uh, mothers whose youngest child is going to middle school, where almost nothing is happening for uh, fathers. So this picture is important because uh, it first allows us to test for the presence of pre-trans and also shows us um, the, the dynamic effect on earnings. Now I'm going to show you the same picture for a series of other outcomes to try to investigate potential mechanisms behind this increase in uh, women's earnings. So in terms of the labor force participation, we see that there's pretty much nothing happening and we have a pretty flat profile. This should not be too surprising given that the labor force participation rate for these categories of parents is actually pretty high. In our sample, women whose youngest child is going to primary school are for about 85% of them are in the labor force. So we did not expect necessarily a huge change on this margin of uh, labor supply, um, which explains why these results might be particularly relevant for countries with high female labor force participation. If we look at the proportion of women and uh, men working part-time, we actually find that there's like a slight decrease in the proportion of women uh, declaring working part-time why we don't observe significant decrease for, uh, for fathers uh, compared to the control group. Um, now, if we look at the number of hours worked per week, uh, where you can see that here the standard errors are gonna be a bit uh, larger because this is typically more subject to measurement errors in the, in the uh, labor force survey. But we also, uh, in um, consistent with the previous pictures on part-time, we see an, uh, a slight increase in the number of hours work per week for mothers that we don't uh, observe for fathers. And looking at the number of days work per week, uh, we actually observe that there's a clear increase in the number of days uh, declared uh, by mothers after the implementation of the reform, while the profile of uh, father's labor supply seems uh, pretty flat. So additionally, I just wanted to show you the measure for hourly wage where we uh, consistently with the uh, pictures on monthly wage and hours, we observe this increase in hourly wage for treated mothers compared to control mothers, while the profile for treated fathers com compared to control fathers is, is actually completely flat. So uh, in order to quantify the average effects for, uh, for our population of interest, we're going to implement a, a standard difference in differences strategy where we're going to exploit the variation over time and across the age of the youngest child in the implementation of the reform. So in this case, our coefficient of interest is going to be beta, which is going to be capturing the interaction between a dummy variable equal to one if the youngest child is between the age of six and 11 and the variable post, which is going to um, take the value one in September, 2013 for parents living in municipalities that introduced the reform in 2013 and uh, equal to one from September, uh, 2014 onward for the other municipalities. I just wanted to emphasize that the staggered adoption of the reform by municipalities does not constitute a threat to our identification because we use a within municipality between youngest child age comparison. 
But in a series of robustness check, we're actually going to implement um, an alternative specification where we don't even consider the variation across municipalities. And we just assume that each municipality is treated after September 2013. And we find very similar results. So in some ways, we're not threatened by uh, the potential issues that are associated with even study with a staggered adoption design. So this is the, um, the average effect for the outcomes that I introduced before. Um, so what you can see is that um, on, on this table, we confirm the, the null effect on, in terms of labor force participation for uh, on panel A, treated mothers and uh, treated fathers in panel B. Um, and again, if you look at the pretreatment mean, you wouldn't be too surprised given the very high level of participation for uh, these parents. Colon two shows you the impact of the reform in, on the prevalence of part-time work. And uh, we quantified that there's a significant decrease in the probability of working part-time for treated mothers compared to control mothers, uh, while there's no statistically significant effect for, um, for treated fathers. We have a positive and marginally statistically significant effect on the number of hours worked per week. Uh, and no statistically significant effect for fathers. Uh, again, positive effect on number of days uh, work per week for mothers. And as I showed you before, the uh, quantification of the increase in earnings for mothers. So to sum up these results, what we can say is that in terms of the number of days work per week and the probability of working part-time, treated mothers are closing at half of the initial gap that they had with respect to control mothers. So in about three or four years, the reform helped them to, uh, catch up with, uh, with controlled mothers. And in terms of earnings, we, we document that compared to the baseline mean, there's a 6% reduction in the unadjusted gender pay gap uh, following the reform. Now, in order to, to try to find uh, what is behind these earnings changes, in terms of mechanism, if you remember, I mentioned that uh, the French labor force survey introduced in 2013 a question measuring whether uh, the worker was working each day of the week. So we are able here to show you the impact of the reform on the probability of working on each day of the week. And what you can see on this graph is that for mothers, there's a clear increase in the probability of working on Wednesday uh, that is statistically significant. And the point estimate is about four times higher, larger than uh, the point estimate for fathers. What you can also observe is that these increase in the work on Wednesday can actually be related to a substitution um, to the work on over the weekend, because we observe a um, decrease in the probability of working on Saturday for treated mothers um, in this sample. Now, I wanna say that this uh, effect on Saturday is only marginally significant. And as soon as we're going to adjust um, our p-values uh, for multiple hypothesis testing, which we do for all the p-values that I showed you, uh, this effect is actually going to uh, disappear. So, um, so this is the, uh, the effect for uh, uh, panel A, an average effect, just showing you the point estimates. Um, so in case you're wondering, the number of observation is slightly lower because we have less pre-reform uh, period because the question was only introduced in 2013. So we have three uh, quarters pre-reform, but we are able to really document this uh, net increase in the probability of working on Wednesday for mothers 
And there's substantially like virtually no changes in the school schedule and time allocation uh, of fathers. To quantify this effect, we can say that uh, women are treated mothers are closing about 40% of the initial gap with respect to the control group uh, after the implementation of the reform. Now, I wanted to uh, emphasize that we have made sure that our results are robust to uh, a large set of specification uh, where that I plot here, I plot the estimates. So here in red, you have our main specification and the point estimates for uh, various other specification where we change, for instance, instead of municipality fixed effect, we added province fixed effect. We changed the uh, cluster unit by clustering at the age of the youngest child time quarter. And we also changed the size of the pre-period reform in order to align to the uh, specification for the uh, probability of working each day of the week. We also made sure that um, our um, results were robust to changes in the sample definition. So for instance, when we included school personnel, um, if we made sure that we had a sample where wages were not missing because wages are only reported every uh, every four uh, quarter in the labor force survey. And we also changed the size of the control group. So in our main specification, we're comparing the labor force, uh, uh, the labor supply decisions of mothers uh, of children aged between 16 and 11 to children aged between 12 and 16. But if we can change, reduce and, and uh, increase the size of the control group and we find really uh, consistent estimate. So this is for uh, the effect on part-time work, but I can show you uh, that this is robust for all our outcomes of interest. This is typically for the log of real monthly wage. Um, as another uh, robustness check, we're also comparing uh, how our estimates vary if we look only at um, women residing in municipalities that adopted the reform in 2013 and women who visit in municipalities that adopted the reform in 2014. And we actually don't find any uh, um, uh, stark differences in the uh, point estimates for these two groups of, um, of mothers. We also changed the uh, treatment definition by just looking at, uh, by assuming that the treatment starts in 2013 for all municipalities, regardless of the timing of adoption, and we find really consistent results as well. So just to sum up uh, our results at that stage, um, I wanted to remind you that we have documented that the reform led to an increase in the probability of working on Wednesday uh, and treated mothers were able to close about 40% of the initial gap with respect to the control group. So this is bringing additional evidence that we, there exists some leisure complementarities within the household. And when the uh, uh, schedule of a member of the household, like the child is, is affected, then it's going to have spillovers on the schedule of mothers. Um, we also have um, uh, evidence that, we show evidence that women uh, shift from part-time contract to full-time contract, and that additionally, their uh, monthly wage increased by 3%. And one question that we're going to investigate now is whether these impacts is coming from change in occupation or a redefinition of the same contract. And as I showed you, no impact on fathers, so the gender gap in pay decreases by 6%.
So for the mechanisms, we are investigating uh, potential changes and specifically between firm mobility and change of, of occupation. You could think that the reform could lead to an increase in the likelihood for uh, mothers to find better paid job opportunities because they are less tied to family friendly firms. It could also be the case that after the implementation of the reform, there's an increase in the cost of statistical discrimination in the sense that if employers were making recruitment decision influenced by the assumption that these women are going to ask for more flexibility, then now they cannot make this assumption anymore. Um, we also try to in, uh, investigate whether there's any change in occupations because now you could think that women might gain access to high paying occupations that offer them uh, with less temporal flexibility. And finally, we're going to also investigate whether the reform can affect other decisions that could impact women's careers. So typically changes in human capital investment or uh, changes in fertility decision as the career cost of children could be uh, seen as decreasing. So we are investigating all these uh, potential outcomes. And what I can tell you is that we don't find any evidence that there's a decrease in tenure in the firm. So it doesn't seem that women actually took the opportunity of the reform to change company or to change contracts. They are not more likely to work in big firms that are uh, typically more high paying or uh, more or less likely to work in a given occupation because we don't document any statistically significant changes in the probability of working in any given occupation. Additionally, we don't find uh, that women took the reform as an opportunity to access more on-the-job training or uh, that it significantly increased their level of education because we do not document significant changes in the level of education and neither do we document effects on the number of children. So it looks like fertility decisions were actually unchanged. So the way we rationalize these, uh, these um, effects is basically saying that the reform made it easier for mothers to shift from part-time to full-time contract within the same firm. It did not change their job opportunities, at least in the short run. Uh, the fact that we observe a marginally significant effect on hourly wage seems to provide additional evidence of the presence of a part-time penalty, or uh, as uh, Claudia Golding calls it, a cost of flexibility. Additionally, um, we show in the paper that there are some, uh, some evidence that high-skilled mothers are more responsive to the opportunity of working regularly because we find that highly educated mothers and mothers typically working in managerial occupation um, respond significantly more than uh, low-educated mothers. I don't know if there's any question in the Q&A that I haven't seen, uh, but you should, you should let me know if... Not, not clarification, we'll hold that to the end. Okay, awesome. Um, and to finish, also in the paper, we are actually documenting that uh, there are no substantial differences between um, in the effect of the reform across uh, how, types of households. So specifically, we are looking at households in which women have a higher level of education than their partner or a lower or equal uh, level of education than their partner. And the fact that we don't observe significant variation by degree of specialization with the households suggests that a women's labor supply decision actually stems from an individual maximization problem than more than a joint decision problem, as uh, it seems to be suggested by certain uh, joint labor supply models. Now to finish, I just wanted to introduce um, uh, our welfare analysis. So 
we are basically trying to assess the overall social welfare effect of this policy. And in particular, we want to quantify the effect of reducing the gender pay gap on public finances. So we are following the approach developed by Nathan Hendren uh, by computing the marginal value of the public funds, what he calls the MVP, which is basically the ratio between the willingness to pay and the cost of the reform adjusted for any potential fiscal externality. So for um, the cost of the policy, we are basically using estimates from, uh, from a study by Cassette and Favac who are using uh, public finance data. And they're estimating that the reform costs about between 177 and uh, 211 euros uh, per child per year in a, in a given city. And um, we actually compute the fiscal uh, externality of the reform uh, by basically using the labor supply response of mothers and uh, computing the increase in government revenues. And so we are able to compute the net costs of the reform, which is about 106 uh, euros. For the willingness to pay, typically in these types of analysis, it includes all the benefits generated by the reform. So in our case, we're going to consider savings on childcare costs, uh, but typically it could also uh, account for the effects on children and even subsequent wage effects. We are not going to consider them uh, uh, in this analysis because as far as we know, there are no reliable estimates of the effect of this reform on children, um, essentially because of lack of data and uh, potential empirical design. So we're going to assume that these effects are uh, negative, uh, zero. So we bound the willingness to pay by including only the private cost of extracurricular activities that would allow mothers to work more con continuously. So we use a conservative measure of, uh, of the annual cost by relying on the survey of childcare arrangements. And we are going to assume that the public provision of extracurricular activities is, crowding, uh, is crowded out by private options um, for mothers who were already working on Wednesday before the reform, which was 59%. So overall, we're able to compute a willingness to pay. It's a conservative estimate of 385 euros. By taking the ratio and computing a confidence interval for this uh, welfare analysis, we can say that one euro invested in this reform repays at least 3.7 euros uh, even not including uh, the potential benefits that, uh, that children could derive from it. So uh, for our welfare analysis, we are, are implementing a series of robustness check. We take varying uh, cost assumptions. Uh, we also account for potential displacement effects. If other workers' earnings are negatively affected by the reform, then this could reduce the potential uh, positive fiscal externality on public finances. So we are uh, accounting for this. And we also implement a sensitivity analysis for the computation of uh, our confidence intervals. So uh, I'm uh, almost uh, finishing the presentation. So I just wanted to uh, wrap up and say that uh, in our analysis, we were able to show that uh, over 40% of women did not work on Wednesday before the introduction of the reform. And this is giving you some additional evidence that child taking responsibilities limit women's chances of having a regular Monday to Friday working schedule. Um, after the implementation of the reform, we see an increase in the probability of mothers um, of working uh, in a regular and full-time uh, working schedule while the labor supply of fathers actually wasn't changed. 
And um, this is bringing new causal evidence that children's school schedule actually affects the gender pay gap among parents. And uh, by allowing a longer and regular working schedule uh, to mothers, it helps close about 6% of the gender pay gap of, uh, on a pre-reform base of 30, 33%. And in this reform with our welfare analysis, we show that the school revenues um, added to the family saving on childcare is actually uh, larger than the cost of the reform. So in terms of policy implications, which obviously is particularly timely in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we show that there are some strong complementarities between the provision of preschool childcare and a regular organization of children's schedules if we want to tackle the parental uh, gender pay gap. So thank you very much for your attention and uh, I'm here to answer any question. So thank you so much, Clementine, that was brilliant. Um, we're gonna move to the Q&A now. If you're like me and all questions that you had, Clementine was answering just as she went because she basically covered everything, um, then that's okay. But I know that we've already got a couple of questions in the Q&A. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna come to you and see if you wanna come on screen and ask the question directly yourself. Feel free to say no, at which point I'll just read it out for you. So Maria, did you wanna, did you wanna ask your question first? Hey, can everyone hear me? Yeah, we've got you. Yeah, I wanted to know if you have investigated differences in the effect of the reform by number of children. Uh, sorry if you already mentioned it, uh, but I wasn't sure if you have looked, I know you have looked into children's age, but then it's, is there any difference if there is only one or maybe two or more than three children uh, in the household? That's a Thank good question. Thank you for the presentation. Thank you. Thank you. Now that's a good question and I haven't talked about it in the presentation. Uh, we have investigated this uh, line of heterogeneity, but we didn't find any uh, striking differences uh, by number of children and by number of treated children, which were the two, uh, the two options. And we didn't find really striking differences. So it seems that it's really, the constraint is coming from the youngest child and does the structure of the family doesn't seem to be influencing that much the decisions of others compared to other sociodemographic characteristics. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Maria. Uh, Brendan, are you happy to ask your own question? Yeah, I'm good to go. Go ahead. Great. Uh, hi, Clementine. Uh, I was wondering, it, it's not a very well-formed question, but if, if the moms of six to 11-year-old kids are competing with moms of 12 to 16-year-old kids because they've got kids of similar ages, maybe similar sort of levels of human capital, couldn't that upward bias your treatment effects? And if that is a concern, one possibility so, could be to look at moms who, or well, um, women who don't have moms, like if, if they're less substitutable and they're competing for different types of jobs and just to see, even though maybe they're not as good a control group, do you see similar patterns of, of treatment effects in terms of your event study estimates? Thank you for this question. So uh, we chose this control group because of the similarities in the labor supply dynamics uh, with respect to our treaty group. 
but uh, you're right that this there could definitely be potential displacement effect in this case. And that's why in the paper, we plot the road trend to make sure that these effects are not driven by the control group itself. If we observe in the train a sort of um, uh, a, a stark changes from uh, for coming from the control group, then we would be worried about mm -hmm. uh, potential displacement effect and uh, that uh, uh, our estimates would be biased. But, but the fact that when we look at road trend, it seems that most of the action is really coming from the control, mo uh, the treated mothers, uh, is reassuring to us that we do not really uh, facing this problem. Okay. But thank you. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Brendan. Asma, did you want to ask? No. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, uh, we've got you. Good. Hi, Clementine, thank you for your talk. Um, so I was wondering, um, like in terms of inequality within women, like do you think it's possible that like the subgroup of women who are affected were already at the top of the income distribution? And do you think it can have an impact of inequality within um, like gender groups? That's a, that's a really good question. Uh, you're right. We have documented that most of these effects and specifically the effects uh, in terms of uh, earnings are driven by women in high-skilled uh, occupations. So women with uh, at least a college degree or more, uh, women working in executive managerial occupations. So, uh, so definitely, uh, I think the fact that we uh, observe all women responding to the constraint on Wednesday is telling us something about uh, the fact that uh, whenever uh, these, um, uh, these need for temporal flexibility is relaxed, uh, all women are actually taking advantage of it. So these effects on Wednesday is present across the board. But when we look at uh, the sort of career um, uh, consequences in terms of earnings, uh, this is definitely driven by one specific group of uh, women in hyping occupations. So, um, so in terms of uh, the, the welfare analysis, the fact we didn't take it, uh, we actually didn't take into account uh, differential uh, tax rates uh, by, uh, we computed an average tax rate for each woman based on their earnings, and we used one average effect for earnings, but uh, it is true that if, if we had enough power, we could take only the larger point estimates for uh, for high uh, paying uh, mothers, and we would have an even greater fiscal externality. So, in some sense, um, uh, through the redistributive system, uh, this is unclear whether the reform would actually increase inequality. It could actually be the case that by high increasing the earnings of uh, women in high paying jobs, you actually increase government revenues and potentially increase redistribution. Uh, but that's a really good question. Thank you. Thanks, Asma. Jake, did you wanna? Yeah, so um, I wondered, maybe this requires a bit more speculation, but I wondered um, if, obviously UK is very different context, we don't have this feature of, of Wednesday. So I wondered if, if I could ask you to maybe speculate on um, the implications for a labor market slash education system like ours, does it have any read across to start of days, end of days, those sorts of features, as well as a whole big chunk like this? 
Yeah, so I, I just wanted to add that uh, this reform seems really peculiar to the French context, but actually, for instance, in the United States, there's many counties that have implemented a four-day-per-week school schedule, specifically in, in rural areas, uh, for, for cost reason. And we, we, we can speak also to these contexts where we think that uh, uh, these results are relevant. Um, to, to speculate about um, what, is, what is happening in the UK, obviously would be, uh, I, I don't want to go too far, but I think what we can say is that uh, if, if anything, the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted uh, how important uh, the uh, complementarities, complementarities between uh, uh, children's time and, and uh, mother's time were. And so, and what we are showing here is that not only we should care about uh, childcare centers and uh, preschool childcare in general, but also for children who are older, uh, there is a clear complementarities. And so um, in the discussion about uh, school closure and school reopening, um, we just want to kind of highlight the, uh, the gender penalty dimension here that could also that could exist even for mothers who have children going to primary school, for instance. Thanks, Jake. Are there any other participants that wanted to ask a question? Otherwise, I've got one if that's okay. Okay, I'm going to go ahead. So I find the um, I find the findings about log hourly wages in particular like really compelling. Um, you know, the monthly wages obviously could be working through the the shift in hours that was that would have had quite an immediate impact. I was surprised to see the monthly uh, sorry the hourly wages were impacted quite so soon though. Um, it looked like it was kind of almost an immediate impact of the reform that the hourly wages for women uh, jumped up. And I know you touched on this a little bit in the in the mechanisms section, um, but I, I wondered if you could just expand a little bit on this in this uh, kind of striking hourly wages finding, because I think that's really where you get at the gender pay gap being decreased, you know, by this reform. Um, so I think that's a particularly kind of pertinent point. Yeah, so um, I would say one of the limitations of our setting is that we we basically cannot fully disentangle uh, between two sets of explanations for the effect on hourly wage. It could be driven by the increase in hours. So if you are in the perspective of Golden, for instance, and you you uh, assume that certain firms and certain occupations tend to disproportionately reward individuals for working long. And, uh, and specific hours, then in itself, the increase in hours could explain the increase in hourly wage. Um, that's one possibility. The second possibility is that by having a more regular working uh, schedule and a more regular presence in the workplace uh, by showing their face one additional day during the week, then women are signaling something to their employer and they are potentially signaling uh, uh, more ability, but also signaling loyalty and so on. And so um, that is a key limitation of our of our setting is that we cannot disentangle what is due to the increase in hours and what is due to the more regular presence in the workplace. And so I think um, some evidence uh, using, for instance, MTurk um, workers would be able to to say something about that. But in our context, the reform is doing both uh, mm -hmm. uh, the increase in hours and on Wednesday, and so and probably the uh, of working on Wednesday. So, um, so we cannot say really a lot about that, and that's why I'm really cautious about how to interpret these uh, uh, these hourly uh, wage effect. But if anything, we can say that this is additional evidence that there uh, there is a part time penalty, and that as women are shifting from part time to full time contract, then we observe an increase in their uh, 
in the hourly wage. So yeah, that's what I would say. Fascinating, really. Thank you. Um, Jill, did you wanna did you wanna ask your question directly? Hi, yes, I'm here. I didn't Hello. know how that was gonna work. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm sort of, my question is kind of also not that well developed, but also getting at, I think, a similar, the similar themes that you've been talking about. So I know that there was a similar reform that happened in Germany and Nikki Shearer has got a paper um, looking at that and they found that um, there was no effect um, on hours worked by women who were already in employment. It didn't make any difference. Um, although I think the paper wasn't really able to explain why. But I just wondered, like, how can the French labour market react so quickly to this to this kind of reform? Like if women suddenly all demanded more hours, you know, it doesn't seem like it would be so easy for employers to just offer those those hours and money without, you know, taking a financial hit. So I didn't know if you had anything to say about that. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, the German reform really had to do with uh, after-school programs. So uh, the school schedule structure is a little different in Germany, as in they, uh, they end school uh, early in the afternoon. And so what these uh, reform did was to introduce these after-school programs and trying to document the impact of these reform uh, essentially on, on employment, and I think you're right, on hours for uh, for working mothers. In that sense, the reform that we're looking at is a little bit different because of these like needs break in the middle of the week, um, which yeah. uh, which uh, differs a little bit from the from the German context. The other difference is uh, the um, both the labor force participation rate of um, uh, French mothers is higher, if I remember correctly, compared to uh, German mothers in this context. I think and, that's right, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and uh, so is the average uh, hours of worked, uh, average hours worked per week in France tends to be higher than for German mothers, uh, specifically because even if about 30% of these mothers are working part-time, they do have a pretty high part-time in terms of hours. While uh, it seems that the part-time work in Germany uh, typically has, um, is associated with a lower, lower number of hours. So I would say it could be explained by a differential attachment to the labor market and a different uh, ability to, um, to really uh, adjust at the intensive margin. Um, so I, I think in that sense, our results speak to, uh, to intensive margin adjustments, typically in countries with a high female labor force participation which uh, in, in some ways it would be different from all the literature looking at the impact of school calendar in mm -hmm. Chile, for instance, or uh, in contexts where uh, female labor force participation is actually much lower. Mm. So, um, so I think that's why it's, it, it would be relevant for context. Um, and we have seen in this literature that the child penalty is documented in, in a variety of contexts, including in the Scandinavian countries where uh, female labor force participation is really high. So uh, I, that, that would be my interpretation of the, the difference uh, in the results that we find compared to the after-school program reform in Germany. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think it's really interesting that context is obviously really important here, actually. Um, so yeah, that's great. Thanks. Well, thanks very much, Clementine. Um, I think we've come to the end of our time. Um, I, I find that really fascinating, really, um, really compelling.
evidence of of the way in which school reforms can actually impact on on the labour market and on the gender pay gap. Um, so thanks for taking the time and for being the first person up in the CPO seminar series. Thanks to all our participants for joining us. Um, our next seminar in the series will be on the last Thursday of next month, the 25th of February, where we're joined by Dr. Claire Crawford from the University of Birmingham, who will be talking about the impact of school closures on parents and child well-being. Um, so do join us then, um, and we'll be circulating information on that shortly. Okay, Thank thanks very so much. much. Thank you.